0: Let's stand together again, as Noah comes this morning to read to us from the book of Amos.
1: Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Calne and look at it. Go from there to great Hamath and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and attest his fortresses. I, I will deliver up this city and everything in it. This is the word of the Lord from Amos 6, verses 1 through 8.
0: Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. idols have always been a problem for God's people. We see God's people worshiping them throughout Israel's history, whether they're worshiping the false gods of the Canaanites or the Assyrians or others and bowing down before the graven images that represent those false gods or that they believe those false gods demanded. The people continually throughout the Hebrew Scriptures gave themselves over To idols, even though God reminded them from the beginning and again and again not to do it. We see this time and again throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, and we're tempted to think, what is wrong with you people? Why do you keep doing this? Don't you ever learn? And yet, we American Christians have our own idols also. Though ours are not usually made of wood, metal, or stone, They function in the same way as the ancient idols that held the people captive. How? Because they demand from us the same thing. They demand our allegiance. They demand that we give to them things that we're only supposed to give to God. Above anything else, they demand our worship. And God, our creator, is the only one who is worthy of our worship. Idols promise us things that they cannot give and they demand sacrifices from us that we cannot afford to give. Idols want us to set aside the commands, the words, and the worship of God and put them instead in God's place. As one scholar said, idols set themselves up as a substitute for the Creator. They are created things And yet they demand we worship them as created things instead of the creator Who scripture tells us is the Lord God forever to be praised? We have our idols too And anything becomes an idol when we seek in it or through it peace and comfort and security That can only be found in God himself And here in our culture when it comes to the most prominent American idols, we only need to consider some of the major areas where we prioritize our time and our money and our energy. Things like entertainment and politics and sports, dare I say. Our technology, the the drive always for personal improvement, whether or not it's good for our neighbors, and productivity. We can never produce enough. We're always way too busy, and yet we always feel like we're not getting enough done. We have these idols all around us, and they demand our time. They demand our energy. They demand our resources. While all along, just like we see God doing with his people in Amos, the Lord is still there saying, when do I get my turn? When when do I have all of your heart? All of your soul, mind, and strength like I've commanded. When, when do I get to experience the love that, that only you're supposed to have for me that then flows through you in a way that shows that you love your neighbor as yourself? We are not all that different from the people in Amos' day. And, and really, I think this chapter, chapter 6, brings us to some idols that they had that we can relate to. We might not be able to relate to bowing down before the gods of Assyria or the gods of the Canaanites But we can relate to the language that we read here in chapter 6 Because it sounds an awful lot like what in many ways the world looks like today We've lived without some of our idols for a period of time recently You may remember that just a couple years ago The world came to a screeching halt We didn't live without all of them, but for a while, some of our idols were put on pause. And I remember hearing some of us say things like, and I say us because I'm talking to myself, this has been kinda nice. Though we hate all the terrible things about it, we've had more focused time with our families than we've had in a long, long time. Some of you, like we did in our house, you got more strategic about spending time in the Word as a family. Doing more worship in your home. We were forced to slow down. For a moment, we hated it, but for a little while, we enjoyed the fact that for, it seemed like maybe some of our priorities were going to get back in order. And yet, I, if I talk to one person, I talk to 100 people who say we are busier now than we ever were before COVID was a reality. We have jumped right back into the rat race just like we were, if not worse. No matter how fast our pace is, at some point, God will slow us down and call us back to attention. That's happening in the book of Amos. Perhaps it's happening around us and we simply don't notice. And as we jump into chapter 6, and we think about some of the major themes we've seen throughout the book of Amos... I think the word in verse 1 just really makes sense and it, and it makes sense for Amos' word but it also makes sense for the times in which we're living the word complacent remember here God is speaking to his people he's not shouting out through Amos to everybody else he's speaking right into the heart of the community of faith and he says woe To you who are complacent. If you you look through several different translations of verse 1, you'll find complacent over and over again as the English translation. This is a great rendering of the Hebrew word. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. To you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. To those of you who are on top, who have everything that you need, who cannot question whether or not you've been blessed by God, to the foremost people of the nation, to, to whom everyone is coming, saying you are the ones with the answers, you have grown complacent. You've become too comfortable. You've become too secure in yourself and in what you have. You've become too dependent upon your resources and you have grown complacent. You've set aside the commands of God. You've forsaken justice and righteousness and you are all too comfortable in your sin. But woe to you is what God says. He doesn't say to the complacent keep enjoying it. This is fine. This is exactly where I want you to be. Woe to you who are complacent Because as we read later in the chapter, that complacency along with your comfort is soon to come to an end. As we look throughout the history of the church, we're not alone in this. Throughout the almost 2,000 years now of the history of Christ's church, the church has often grown complacent when it's comfortable. In times of comfort, times of security, times of prosperity like the people of Israel we're we're dealing with in amos's day. The church just tends to grow complacent. We we become too self-confident We become too self-assured And it's easy to grow complacent in those times But as we've said the last few weeks in a very counterintuitive way when the church has been the most persecuted the most uncomfortable the most Dependent upon god the church has grown the most and has been far more effective than in those times of comfort. None of us want that persecution. None of us, I I would imagine, are praying that God would just remove all of our comfort. But the reality is the church has thrived in times of insecurity, but has often grown very complacent in times of comfort and security. And, And we face the same thing. And as I was thinking about this first part of this chapter... A few things came to mind that I would just call some truths, okay? And I think these are truths we can find in Scripture. And I would imagine these are some truths that many of you have experienced in your own life. The first one is this. Control is an illusion. If we really, truly ever think we are in control... Control is an illusion, and doesn't life have ways of reminding us that in the end, we are truly not in control? Comfort does not last. Comfort does not last. Security is never guaranteed. And then I would hang over all of this, a statement that Scripture repeats on multiple occasions. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. These are some truths. This is what God is getting to here with this idea. Woe to you who are complacent. In verse 2, he mentions three very prominent cities. And he says, compare yourselves to them. Compare yourselves to Kalna, which was the capital of Syria at the time. Compare yourselves to Hamath. Another larger city in Syria, but much closer to Israel, a city they could see on a regular basis from the area of Samaria. And then Gath, which was the capital city in Philistia, the, the capital of the Philistines. Compare yourselves to them, God says. Are you better off than them? Are, is your land larger than theirs? What is God ultimately saying here? Israel, you are not the only big kid on the block. And when you look around you, there are other cities who are experiencing some prosperity. There are other cities, there are other nations that have a strong military. You're not the only big kid on the block. What has set you apart to this point is that you've been my people and my hand has been on you. But what God's going to say next, woe to you who are complacent. One of the bigger kids is about to show up on your doorstep. And when this bigger kid shows up, I will no longer protect you. You put off, verse 3, the day of disaster. You've grown complacent, but you're only delaying the inevitable. You've been living, we might say, in blissful denial, ignoring the imminent. A man reaps what he sows, and the consequences for your sin... The consequences for your idolatry The consequences for your self-confidence Control is an illusion Comfort does not last A man reaps what he sows The day of disaster is coming You put off the day of disaster And you bring near a reign of terror And then look at verse 5 This is that, that sort of blissful denial picture You strum away on your harps like David, and improvise on your musical instruments. I couldn't help it, but echoing in my mind here is that old phrase about the Roman Empire, about Nero. Remember, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. You strum along on your harps in blissful denial, like everything is great, and like God's word doesn't really matter. But strum away, God is saying because you're only putting off the day of disaster, and and a a reign of terror is near. In these verses, though, as I mentioned, where I think we can relate a little bit more to the idolatry that God mentions here, in these verses, God also talks about their extravagance. He talks about the, the, the lap of luxury in which they lived and their overindulgence in every area of their lives it's interesting here that he doesn't mention the idols of gold and silver and and stone and wood but he mentions instead the idols of their blessings their wealth, their indulgence sometimes we might want to ask the question is prosperity a sign of blessing? yes, I believe sometimes it is We can see that in scripture, it's not always a guarantee that being obedient is going to lead to prosperity, but there are times where God says flat out, these blessings you have have all come from me. Every good gift comes from above. But along with that blessing of prosperity comes the responsibility that God gives to us as his people that we would use our blessings to be a blessing. So sometimes blessings can be a sign of prosperity. Other times, prosperity can be a curse because we do the same thing that the ancient Israelites did and the people of God. We take the blessings and we worship them. We take the prosperity and we serve it. And it becomes idolatrous and we begin to ignore God and begin to think that God's word doesn't matter. Our stuff, can become idols. Look at what God describes here in verses 4 and 6. You lie on beds adorned with ivory, and you lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. Verse 6 You drink wine not by the glassful, but by the bowlful, and you use the finest of lotions but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. What does that mean? It means you don't repent. You're not broken over your sin. You're all too happy about your blessings. You're all too willing to worship your stuff. But when God speaks to you and he reveals your sin to you, you are not broken, you do not grieve, but you keep strumming away on your harps as if nothing is really wrong. There are some other passages of Scripture. We've actually read these that describe the, the luxury that people lived in. You may remember a couple of these from, verse, from chapter 2. They sell the innocent for their silver. They, they sell the needy for a new pair of sandals. In the house of their gods, they drink their wine. Chapter 3, you... You who are of the, the, the leading class who sit in Samaria relaxing by the head of your bed or at the end of your couch. Chapter 4. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria who get fat on other people's grain and demand more. And you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and yet say to your husbands, bring us some more drinks. Now everybody remembers that verse. Here's a couple more. Chapter 3 and chapter 5. I will tear down your winter house along with your summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed. The mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Chapter 5. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. The wealthy had multiple houses, extravagant decor, all the pleasures they desired. Yet on the extreme other side of the spectrum were the poor who were oppressed. They were exploited in the courts. They were exploited on their own property. They were exploited in their own businesses. And it wasn't just that the people were doing nothing. The people of God, their kings, their priests, their prophets, their leaders, who were supposed to demand justice and represent God's love for those who are vulnerable, they were complicit in the exploitation they were doing it to these people those who were not able to defend themselves were being exploited at every turn and listen here's another thing our idols do they not only distort the, the, the worship that we have for God and who he is they also distort our view of God's image in people They they make us think that they are even more important than our neighbor. Idols lead us to sin against the first great commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, but they also lead us to sin against the second great commandment, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Our stuff becomes more important than our neighbor. Our comfort, our security, all of that stuff, if it's idolatrous, we will sacrifice others in order to please and to serve and to maintain that idol worship. And all of us, if we would search our hearts today, including me, we would likely find somebody or some type of somebody to whom our hearts have grown cold and and we no longer even consider them to be our neighbor. Idols do this. They attack our worship they attack our love they attack our obedience they attack the community of faith and everyone around them unless we only spend our time this morning here in amos i can't help but think of one of jesus most memorable parables when i read this chapter luke chapter 12 it's on the screen jesus said to them watch out be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Yet who are we? We are those who, who never have enough. We want what we want, and we want it now, but what we want is never enough for us. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns, and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus, surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then, who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Jesus said, this is how it will be, with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. There are lots of parts of the book of Amos that might seem distant to us, might not sound like our day, but when you hear this teaching from Jesus, you look back on Amos chapter 6, and you're like, yep, we get it. Because we too chase the same things. We too live pretty well most of the time. And that is not me making judgment or assumptions about you, any less than you would about me. But for the most part, the way we live, we still have it pretty good compared to the rest of the world. And because of that, we face the same temptation to focus on our idols, to worship our stuff instead of the Creator. Yet none of us know that whether or not this night our life will be demanded from us. And then what will happen to all that we've stored up for ourselves? Back to the book of Amos, chapter 6. We didn't read this verse, but just a little bit later in the chapter. God says to his people, you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness worshiping our idols leads us to reject our worship of the Lord and it leads us to forsake our love for our neighbor and what comes next you have put off the day of disaster the last two verses we read basically are summarized in this way the party is over that's what comes next your feasting and your lounging will end Verse 7, Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. When the bigger kid shows up at your doorstep, the bigger kid is going to be Assyria. We read about this in Scripture. This is also, by the way, very well documented throughout other historical sources. In 722 BC, Assyria showed up in the northern kingdom of Israel and they infiltrated them, they kicked some of the people out, and as Amos prophesied, some of you leading people will be the first ones to go into exile, because what do you do when you're the bigger kid on the block? Who, who do you leave, and who do you take back to serve in your own cities? You take the best, the highest skilled, the most educated, You will be the first to go into exile. Everybody else was left, and the Assyrians moved in, and they took control of their homes and their land. The exploitation God's people were facing from each other was nothing compared to what the Assyrians would do to them. You will be the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn this by himself, The Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and I detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. By the way, lest the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem was, would hear these words and think it doesn't apply to them. These words echo down just a few decades later and Jerusalem is also delivered up. Not to the Assyrians, but to the Babylonians but in a similar way and for the same reasons. None of us are exempt. Not even Zion, the city of Jerusalem, was exempt from the consequences. A man reaps what he sows when God's people reject him and they continue to live as if his word doesn't matter. Or they do what we often do. They choose the parts they want to follow and ignore the parts they don't. I have to be honest that as we've been going through Amos I have felt really sorry for you and not because I think this is all about you because every Sunday this is just heavy I just feel it I'm like everybody leaves here kind of like wow we needed to hear that but I really hope that our Sunday Bible study lesson is more uplifting than what I've felt for you because I feel the heaviness of course I'm feeling it all week as I'm preparing and studying and praying for Sunday but I feel it on us i feel the heaviness but sometimes that's good it's good for us to reckon with how do we hold up something like this ancient book of amos and see it as a mirror and say what was what is god saying to our hearts through these words i will deliver up the city everything in it a couple more verses from the end of this chapter For the Lord God, verse 11, has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Verse 14, for the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from the north to the south, from Labo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah near the Dead Sea. As we close this morning, I bring us back to A quote that I shared last week that I think is so relevant again this week. That the gods of Assyria occupied the hearts of Israel long before the armies of Assyria occupied her streets and her towns. Where things went wrong was not that God underestimated the power of the Assyrian Empire. Where things went wrong is not that the gods of Assyria conquered the one true God of Scripture. That's not what happened. What went wrong was where we began today. The people gave their hearts to the idols of Assyria and many others. And as they allowed their hearts to go astray, ultimately what happened, it took some time. God sent them prophets. God tried to draw them back. But ultimately what happened is they faced the consequences that God had warned them about all along. It's not that I'm not here But when the big kid shows up, I'm not going to protect you this time Because once again, you have not returned to me Your feasting And your lounging will end And to return to the words of jesus for a moment that we heard during our Old test or new testament reading this morning Jesus said blessed are you who are poor For yours is the kingdom of god, but woe to you who are rich For you've already received your comfort why did Jesus say this? Is this because every person who is rich is condemned? No, there's plenty of examples in Scripture that that's not the case. Jesus said this because he knew that their prosperity, power, comfort, and security would be just as much of a temptation for the disciples and the first Christians as it would be for the people in Amos' day. And in the same way, he knew that those same things, prosperity, power, Comfort and security would be a temptation for us as the church today Just as much as they were for the people of israel Because our idols are just as destructive as the ancient ones And in the end the same sinful desires of the human heart that lead us to worship our idols are present in us Whether it's greed lust for power control our fear But remember control is an illusion Comfort does not last. Security is never guaranteed. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So what's the answer? How do we resist our own idols? How do we make sure that that this word of destruction is not what we will face, that God will will not say to us, I've removed my hand from you? This gets tricky because some people want to talk about this in the context of an empire or a nation, but I'm just speaking simply to the church, to those of us who are the people of God. Here's the words we've heard through Amos. Hear them again this morning. Return. That's the answer. Return to your God and seek him alone. Surrender. Surrender your heart, all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength to the Lord. Listen to me. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Surrender your life and your obedience to the cross of Christ, to his death, his sacrificial death that has provided a way for you to move from death into life, to give all of yourself, to surrender all of yourself to Jesus Christ. And then walk. Walk in the two great commandments. To love the Lord your God, to love your neighbor as yourself, that we might be the church, be the people that God has called us to be in Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you today that as we read hard things and we sense and feel the heaviness in our hearts, we can experience freedom. We don't have to live under the oppression of sin. We don't have to live with the fear of death because we believe in Jesus Christ and the cross and his resurrection. Today, Lord, with all of this heaviness that we feel in in Scripture, but also just that we're carrying our own baggage in our own lives, I pray that you would draw our hearts to surrender, that we would throw up our hands and we would say to you, Lord, whoever you are calling me to be, however you are calling me to walk, that's who I'm to be. That's how I'm going to walk. Today, I surrender my life to you. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has never made that true surrender for salvation, to say, I believe upon Jesus Christ, that today you would draw them to yourself. Lord, that they would say, I believe, that they would confess that you are the Lord, the King of their life, and that they would follow you and surrender from this day forward. For those of us who are following you, Lord, we always need that reminder to return, to surrender to you. Would you lead us today that we would be faithful? And Lord, help us that as we worship one last time and as we leave in just a moment from this room, that we would walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.